Hello again, and thanks for tuning in to this podcast on competition law and patent settlements. And we're coming towards the end of the series, um, and we thought we'd take this opportunity to look ahead and consider some of the outstanding points which you may come across when considering settling patent litigation, but which haven't yet been addressed by the courts. We can't consider all of the outstanding issues, but today my colleagues Sophie Lawrence, Helen O'Connors, and myself, Katie Cambrook, have selected a couple of topics we think are of particular relevance. Thanks, Katie. Um, so to my mind, one of the areas that's likely to be of key commercial interest is how the Court of Justice views license agreements entered into at the same time as a patent settlement. Now, it's quite common when settling litigation for a license to be granted to allow a party to enter a market that is otherwise patent protected. Um, and that can take place at a particular point in time, whether that's on signature of the agreement or at a later date. The question of when this is acceptable from a competitional perspective is going to come up for consideration by the Court of Justice quite soon, as is a central issue in a case that's currently pending before the Court. In that case, Servier and Kirker agreed to settle UK patent litigation on terms that Kirker would stay off the UK market, but at the same time, a licence was granted to Kirker in respect to certain Eastern European markets that it had already entered. So in effect, the licence formalised its market access in those countries. So initially, the Commission found that the licence agreement was an inducement to Kirker to agree to the UK settlement. And so it held that there was a breach of Article 101, the prohibition on anti-competitive agreements. But the General Court actually disagreed. It found that because the licence agreement involved royalty payments at a fair market value, there was no inducement on Kirker to settle the UK litigation. Now that General Court judgment seems about right to me, in particular given the other contextual factors in that case. And it certainly results in significantly greater flexibility for companies looking to settle their disputes. After all, as, as you know, most settlements will involve a bit of give and take by each party. However, it's arguably not quite fully aligned with the Court of Justice's generics judgment. So while we wait for the Court of Justice to rule on the specifics of the Servier-Kirker case, there does remain some uncertainty about the potential risks associated with entering into a license, at least where it doesn't provide for immediate market access to the generic with its own product. Um, the scope for such an agreement to be viewed as a non-monetary value transfer, which is capable of inducing the generic company to delay independent market entry, is obviously very significant for parties looking to settle their agreements through the grant of a licence. Thanks, Sophie. So it seems the take-home message from the General Court in Kirka is that context is key here. In itself, a licence that grants access to alternative markets shouldn't amount to a value transfer. But if there are some additional benefits to the generic resulting from the settlement, um, such as nominal royalties or an exclusive supply agreement, for example, that may give rise to competition concerns. Still, it would be helpful for us to have clearer guidance from the courts on what will or will not amount to a non-monetary value transfer. And one case to watch out for on this question um, particularly of whether granting early or partial entry to alternative markets can constitute a value transfer, is the Humira litigation um, involving AbbVie that's currently before the US Court of Appeals. In that case, it's alleged that AbbVie granted biosimilar companies early access onto certain European markets as a quid pro quo for agreeing to delay market entry in the US. 
Although it's not a European case, it's likely to be of interest to patent and competition lawyers, regardless of jurisdiction, because of the international nature of the agreements at issue. Um, but in the meantime, pharma and biotech companies should seek advice before entering into patent settlement agreements that contain terms uh, that allow entry at different times in different geographical markets. So we've covered non-monetary value transfer as one area that needs addressing. Katie, could you tell us a bit more about some of the other issues surrounding patent settlements that the courts haven't yet dealt with? Yeah, thanks, Helena. Um, another issue which is still open relates to the patents issue in any settlement. Um, we discussed the generics decision from the Court of Justice in our third podcast of this series. And in particular, we looked there at when a company could be considered a potential competitor. Um, as you'll recall, uh, in that case, the generics case, the Court of Justice expressly concluded that the existence of a process patent for an active ingredient that's already in the public domain is not an insurmountable barrier to market entry. And so it didn't prevent two parties from being considered competitors. We posed the question um, in our previous podcast of whether the same approach would be considered in relation to compound patents, which can't be worked around in the same way as a process patent. Um, but the same question as arises with a compound patent could actually arise um, in the context of a process patent if that patent protects you know, the only commercially viable process to make the compound. Um, it could equally possibly apply to a polymorph patent which protects um, the only viable polymorphic form um, for a particular product. The question in those instances is whether those kinds of patents would be considered an insurmountable barrier to entry. And that's a question that hasn't been answered. Um, equally, if every possible market entrant is choosing to respect their compound patent, is there a presumption of validity in relation to that patent? And does that make a difference to the outcome of whether companies can be considered potential competitors. These um, all seem valid considerations uh, and will need to be considered in detail in each case um, unless and until there's some further guidance on this point. So in addition to the position relating to patents, there are also some outstanding issues which arise from the other sorts of protections afforded to pharmaceuticals, um, particularly those under regulatory law. And these can also be relevant when it comes to the competition law assessment of settlement agreements. And again, the courts haven't yet addressed whether the continued existence of, for example, regulatory data protection or orphan drug exclusivity may be relevant to the competitive relationship between the originator and the generic company. So for now, it's up to companies and their advisors to assess how such protections apply. So, for example, looking at regulatory data protection or RDP, this is a, a form of um, regulatory right, if you like, that offers protection over the use of the information, such as clinical trial data, which is generated to obtain an original MA. Now, in principle, it's open to any potential market entrant to generate their own data and to use this to obtain an MA. But generating this data is, is time consuming and extremely expensive. And the whole purpose of the RDP regime is at least allowing for expiry of the regulatory data protection is to lower entry barriers for generic products by allowing them to piggyback on the originator's work. Without that kind of piggybacking, you're simply not going to see a vibrant generic market or the kinds of price decreases that such companies are typically able to offer. And so for those reasons, most generic companies do choose to wait until after the RDP expires before seeking an MA. 
But that doesn't axiomatically mean that generics preparing to enter the market at a point in time before the expiry of RDP will be viewed as non-competitors. Turning to orphan drug exclusivity, this offers 10 years of market exclusivity for drugs treating particular rare diseases, and so effectively prevents any other company from marketing a similar medicine for a similar indication during the period of protection. So the question arises, does the application of orphan drug exclusivity mean that generic drugs under development um, for the same indication are not considered to form part of the same market? Um, as ever with these issues, a case-by-case -case assessment will be necessary. Companies will be viewed as potential competitors um, only where they're likely to be able to enter into the market in a reasonably sort of short time period. Factors such as the length of time that RDP or orphan drug exclusivity have left to run and the fact-specific possibilities for potential market entrants to work around them are things that need to be taken into account when considering this. Thanks, Sophie and Katie. Um, so I think it's safe to say that there are still a number of unanswered questions in this area. Hopefully the courts will be able to give some further guidance on some of these points, um, including in the Lundbeck judgment, which is due to come out on the 25th of March. So please keep an eye out for a follow-up episode on that judgment in due course. And in the meantime, tune into our next episode where Pat Tracy will be discussing some of the practical implications of the issues that we've covered with our colleague from our commercial IP team, Eric Mersep.